0: Hello, gal Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Micro Moment, that show that takes you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm your host, Tess.
1: And I'm John. And I'm Julie.
0: And today we're diving once again into virtual realities into the lives of our TV shows and our movies and doing something that I've been looking forward to for quite some time. And another aspect of proving to everyone once again that everyone and everything has an ultimate microbe moment. So if you have not liked our Star Wars segment, if you do not like television shows, this may not be the podcast for you. But however, if you would like to explore another network show with us and dive into the world of the Belchers, we are here to present to you five micro moments of the Belcher family.
1: And trust us, we watched a lot of Bob's Burgers to find these micro moments too.
0: We don't have to watch that many to find micro moments. There's actually multiple episodes that have micro moments in it within Bob's Burgers. And so today we have one episode per family member of the Belchers to get through to talk about both the episode where we found the micro moment in and what that microbe is all about. So what do you guys want to do? Do you think it makes sense to go from oldest to youngest here in the Belcher family?
2: Sure, I'll start with
0: Bob. So tell us about A Weekend at Mort's.
2: So it starts out with Tina looking at something on the wall that's green. And she says, hey, that looks like a pickle slices, but it's furry. Furry burger. And Louise says, I think it's a message from someone about something trying to warn us about someone or something. And of course, Jean says, it's a booger. It's a booger. I'm with Jean. And then they notice it's getting bigger. And then Bob says, I just hope it's not Green Mold. Mold.
1: And then Hugo comes in and says, it's Green Mold.
2: So yeah, then they get to go next door and spend a life-changing for Bob weekend at Mort's. And it's a pretty hilarious episode, I think. It's one of my favorites. I think it's pretty good. The kids, uh, of course, get into a lot of trouble in the mortuary. And Bob thinks he's going to sit around in gray sweatpants all weekend. And Linda thinks it's going to be their second honeymoon. So that is, of course, not the way it turns out. Of course, the kids have a lot of adventures, but Bob ends up coming down and almost gets burned alive in the coffin. The kids trap him in a coffin and almost burn him because they think he's some sort of mold spored zombie. And they think that they're going to burn him up in his coffin. And so he has an epiphany about how wonderful life is. So it's 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 a I think a very entertaining and, and fun episode, and I I think I laughed a lot during it. And a little bit about green mold, which I think is funny about the the beginning of the episode where the kids all have different guesses about what the green stuff on the wall is. You also may have seen green mold on a building or walls or even on food, and. They, you can't really identify it so the kids come up with a fuzzy pickle and or a message or a uh, a booger and uh, it does turn out to be green mold which is quite common in moist places but most of the time the the most common are cladosporium aspergillus and penicillium and all three of those most people can't tell the difference. You need to have an expert come in and kind of take a sample and they have to look under it, add it under a microscope to see exactly, you know, what that is. So I, I thought that was kind of a funny thing. The kids all came up with something different and, you know, most of, most common people are not going to have, know any difference. They're just going to see that's a green mold or a black mold, just based on the color. That's all they can tell. And that it's, it's growing and spreading on their walls or what have you but you really would need an expert to identify that we have a couple of experts here john what did you find out about this episode in green mold
1: can pretty much grow anywhere in the world like cladosporidium can be found in almost any terrestrial or marine environment which i thought was pretty cool
0: and inside grapevines
1: yeah Well, there's actually a species that promote plant growth and increase fruit yield, too. Mm -hmm. Also, you know, since we're talking about penicillium, we have to talk about Alexander Fleming, or at least briefly touch on Alexander Fleming. I mean, he was the first person to discover, what is it?
0: Penicillin? Yes. Technically, it was Moldy Mary who came up with the penicillium strain that created the first antibiotics in a high-throughput, high-scale way.
1: And I think she discovered penicillium chisogenum. Does that sound about right?
0: I'd have to look at it, but probably.
1: Because that was the one that was mass-produced uh, penicillin, I believe, and uh, they found it because it had like six times more penicillin production than the species Fleming.
0: Yeah, and then it pew, 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 they zapped it with the laser, and it was yeah, 100 times more effective. They
1: irradiated it.
0: Pew, pew, pew. That's that's the real noise that radiation makes in the lab. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, of course, for Aspergillus, Aspergillus niger that's the most well-known one. And it's also called Dark Mold. And I thought this is pretty cool. The genus Aspergillus was first discovered by a minister who named it after Holy Water Sprinkler, which is an Aspergillium.
0: And if you've never seen Aspergillus, you got to go see it. Shout out to my friend Tracy who showed it to me. It's the most adorable microbe in the world. And I hope she's listening because she would be like... Heck, yes, it is. <laughs> aspergillus, it's like, just like this super cute little puffball, like a jellyfish, like upside down jellyfish, just swaying in the breeze.
1: Also, aspergillus is used to ferment food and drinks. Aspergillus or oryze is used to make sake, and aspergillus winti is used to produce soybeans. Hmm.
2: I thought it was pretty interesting that there's like 10,000 species of mold but there's only five of them that are commonly found indoors.
0: How many different kinds of mold are there?
2: There's 10,000 species of mold. Wow. But just five that like to live indoors. Cause I think they're, they have to have a s- specific environment. So they like it to be moist and there has to be something for the microbes to eat for them to exist there. Right.
0: Yep. Yep. Who knew so it was on Bob's wall that that little green mold was eating.
1: I think it was probably a leaking pipe behind the wall that caused
0: Oh, that. it could be. I mean, it's Mort's fault, no?
1: I'll go with Mr. Fish Odor.
0: Oh,
2: okay, yeah, we couldn't blame him. Not sure we want to think too hard about what could be in the walls <laughs> coming out of Mort's place.
1: And you know what's really dumb is just now I realized Mort was named <laughs> after a friggin' mortuary. <laughs> <laughs> Only after 12 years of Bob's being out. <laughs>
2: Way to go, John! Well, he had that super hot date with the other lady mortician there during that uh, episode, which you know, Samantha. Yeah, they wanted to uh, kind of get it on down there in the in the morgue when when they got back from their date.
0: Mm, what could be more romantic? Doing it with some dead bodies.
1: With some dead bodies or around some dead bodies?
0: mean, I guess it's around dead
1: bodies. Because <laughs> that's vastly different, but still weird. <laughs>
0: that's all weird. All right, should we move on to our next Belcher micro
2: moment of Linda Belcher? Well, I do think one of the, uh, the lines in Weekend at Mort kind of, uh, I thought was hilarious and kind of goes into uh, Linda's character where when they're on their date over at Jimmy Pesto's, Linda says, you know, they're uh, drinking some fancy drinks or whatever. And and Linda asked Bob, are you drunk enough to have any fun yet? <laughs> Which I think is awesome because Linda of course is the ultimate wine mom. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I was doing some research for the, for this podcast, I typed in Linda and wine and all kinds of Etsy things came up for Linda holding wine and doing all kinds of funny things. And, uh, I think one of the quotes was that wine makes me drink better or something like that. Have to look
1: that. I like uh one of her one of the recent episodes um Gretchen came over and she's like, "Yeah, I'll have some wine. You shouldn't drink on an empty stomach."
2: <laughs> wine helps me drink.
0: I like the times when she's like sitting in bed and she's like, "Can you get me some wine and some crackers and some cheese and just arrange it for me a little bit?" <laughs> <laughs> Since you're up all right so if you haven't figured it out linda's micro moment is definitely her her being a little wino
2: and she has fun stuff like she says all kinds of she drinks a lot in the episodes all all across and i I was watching the wine train where bob and linda are doing a, a fancy wine tasting and they end up sitting with this guy who's thinks he's like all that he does the whole wine snob yeah swishing of the wine in his mouth and stuff and challenges bob to a wine off and uh bob ends up winning by
0: you can't spoil the ending oh i can't all right that that ending is important
2: yeah all right i won't i won't spoil it but it is pretty hilarious
0: but yeah, one one funny thing about that episode is just like he's being such a wine snob and like, oh, you have to sniff it and like open up the wine and the smells. And Linda's just like, hey, open up wine. Linda's coming in and just like <laughs> chugs the whole glass of wine.
2: Mommy
1: doesn't get drunk. She just has fun. She
0: gets fun.
1: We talk about wine a lot in our podcast.
0: And it's not because we're winos. No. We do drink a lot of wine.
1: We're connoisseurs.
0: Of the grapevine microbiome. Right. That's what I'm an expert in.
1: So instead of going to the nitty-gritty, I I figure I'd say some interesting random facts about wine. Lay it on me. All right. What you got? Did you know there's over 10,000 varieties of wine grapes in the world?
0: Whoa. So there's as many molds as there are wines. Yeah.
2: 10,000, 10,000. But I'm guessing there's a lot more than five varieties indoors.
1: The term shrink to one's health actually originated in ancient Greece. I say that because the host of the meal would take the first sip of wine to prove it wasn't poisonous to the guests.
0: Mm, that's important. Yeah. You want to poison your guests or think your guests are poisoning them. In which case, you need to have better relationships with your friends.
1: Well, it seems like in ancient Greece and Rome, like generals and higher politicians, like you're friends to further, but as soon as they, you didn't need them anymore, you just backstab them.
2: Yeah. I don't feel feel like that's a friend. No. No. I think to just to bring this back to uh, microbial stuff, we have talked about wine quite a bit, but just to remind people that wine really is made with a microbiological process, um, where yeast and bacteria are eating sugar and leading to a formation of a microbiologic, biologically safe stable and enjoyable beverage is what uh, one of the definitions says, which I think is a pretty good definition. What's that yeast, mom? What is that yeast? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just drink this stuff. You guys are the microbiologists. Mm -hmm. You tell me. Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Okay. (laughs) Pour it in my glass and I'm not fancy. I'm like Linda. I do have some standards. I don't like cheap wine, but I do like a nice red wine. You can picture me with a red glass of wine with a big smile on my face going.
0: Open up wine, here I come. Yep,
2: that'll, mm-hmm. that'll do it.
0: Although I, I do think by many standards, we do drink cheap wine, mom. Well, yes, I guess that's probably true. <laughs> We're not too buck checking it, but. I have had box wines that are that are pretty good. Box wines are amazing. Best yeah. thing to bring camping.
2: Yes, definitely.
1: So speaking about red wine, in China, the color red is considered lucky. Because of that and the wine's flavor, China is the leading market for red wine. Really? Yep.
0: I've been to China two and a half times and I've never had red wine there.
2: Really? Yep. Huh. I went to China many times and I don't think I ever had wine.
1: Well, they're like a there's a lot of vineyards that are starting up in China too.
2: There are a lot of
0: vineyards starting up in China. Yeah. That is true.
1: I think one of my favorite facts about wine is it? it's sold in different size bottles and the largest one is called an oh i'm gonna put butcher this the nebuchadnezzar.
0: nebuchadnezzar
1: nebuchadnezzar is that how you spell it uh-huh. pronounce it all right and it's the largest uh, size you can get and it equals 20 regular size bottles or 15 liters
0: which like you better be having a party yeah or inviting linda
1: Linda would take care of that
0: Linda could help you out You and Linda could take that down
1: And here's a little fact for Those that are new to the wine scene Uh, You should always store your wine on the side Uh, The reason because of this It allows the wine to touch the cork And prevent it from drying out And preventing air from leaking into The wine bottle and oxidizing it
0: Mm -hmm. Which we totally do Yeah
1: Yeah. we totally Totally do Mm
2: -hmm. Do as we say not as we do I think yeah. that, only hap- that only counts when your wine is in your house for more than a couple of days.
0: Right, which is hard to do.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Cool.
0: So that is Linda the wino. So her micro moment actually occurs in several episodes.
1: Almost every episode, to be uh, honest. Yeah, I was
2: going to say, just about all of
1: them.
0: Mm-hmm. Shall we move on to the kids?
1: Yes, let's move on to the oldest one.
0: Tina Belcher. All right. So Tina's micro moment comes when she we see into her a cappella group, the Harmoniums, which is in season six, episode 14. Tina has this dream of being the lead in the Harmoniums, despite her very monotone singing voice. But this is her dream. And so she was kind of thrilled when the main soloist uh, ended up getting a case of mono. And that she was eager to take advantage of the situation, and so was the guidance counselor Mr. Frond, who quickly appoints Tina as a new soloist and devises a whole musical around the dangers of kissing and contracting mono. This musical stars Tina as Mona Nucleosis, who contracts mono and in the play dies from it, all because she kissed someone. But Tina struggles with this quite a bit with the musical as it uses fear more than anything else to spread hate about the microbial world, which, you know, we hate because we love the microbial world. But Tina doesn't like it because she doesn't want to be known as the girl against kissing. And as a hormonal teenager, this is really important to her.
1: That's right, because in one episode, she wanted to go to Quippy Kiss It. That's not the right name of the the island, but she's fantasizing about kissing all the boys that quickly kiss it.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, she fantasizes about kissing all the boys always.
1: And touching their butts.
0: And yeah, lots of butts and zombie butts. But I really think this episode is a true hero moment for Tina. It really puts her in this spotlight, which doesn't happen very often. Um, but when she's under this pressure, she's faced with a lot of pressures, both from society and from her own dreams, but then also going against her ethics. And she has to choose either follow what she believes in or follow her dream of being a soloist. So let's talk a little bit about mononucleosis. I feel like it's something we've all hear about a lot in school, but how much do you guys really know about it?
2: I know that your dad got it when we were teenagers and uh, it was quite scary because we didn't know what was wrong with him. And he ended up in the hospital, very, very sick, really dehydrated and a lot of pain, had a really bad headache and yeah, ended up in the hospital. So yeah, it was, it was pretty scary.
1: Honestly, I know it's they call it a kissing disease because it's transferred by saliva. And from growing up, if someone got it, they just like were gone for a couple of days to a week and then they came back. And then maybe people made fun of them when they came back
0: for kissing so many people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It definitely has kind of a bad name with a negative connotation. And while many cases can be quite severe, or some cases can be quite severe. Many of them are not at all. So mononucleosis is often shortened to mono or called the kissing disease, as we said, but it's actually a contagious disease most commonly caused by Epstein-Barr virus. Symptoms can take a bit of time to manifest um, and they can take anywhere from four to six weeks, which is a pretty long time. And so once you contract it, it's pretty easy to spread it around uh, before you start having symptoms like fever or swollen lymph nodes are all symptoms of mononucleosis. But you can also have more severe cases like swelling of the spleen, which sounds super painful, as well as swelling of the liver and a rash. So why is it called the kissing disease? Uh, it's kind of a stupid reason. It's typically a problem in high schools and college age, usually among teenagers, where they're starting to swap saliva through kissing. Uh, but you can also contract this virus through any transmission of bodily fluids, like many other herpes viruses. And this may surprise people. The Epstein-Barr virus is actually a pretty common virus. Even if you've never had mono, the chances are that you are carrying this virus around. In fact, an article I read by Kenneth MKMD at the Brigham and Women's Hospital says the Epstein-Barr virus infects 50% of children before the age of five, and 90% of adults carry the virus. So it's a very good chance that even if you've never had mono, you still have the Epstein-Barr virus.
2: Well, it's interesting because, like I said, like we were... You know, your dad and I were dating at that time and he got it and I never did get it. So
1: maybe you gave it to him.
2: Well, you probably
0: did get it, but you didn't you didn't have symptoms. It's something like one in four people who contract it as teenagers will end up with symptoms.
2: Hmm. Does that give you immunity from it?
0: Well, so here's here's the thing about immunity. Like it can lay latent in you forever. You can never have symptoms and it can just hang out. Just kind of like the chickenpox virus, like the chickenpox virus is kind of always in your system. And then when you get older, you can get shingles. That's not like you contracted shingles. It's the virus that was kind of latent, and you kind of wakes up, and then your immune system freaks out.
1: I was actually thinking kind of like oral herpes. Like a lot of people think that's like an STD, but chances are a lot of people have and they don't know it. And like kids can get it just by sucking on their toys as toddlers.
0: Yeah. Right, and Epstein-Barr virus is one of eight herpes viruses that humans have discovered so far. So it is in line with the sexually transmitted disease herpes as well as oral herpes. And it's made of a double-stranded DNA, and it was first discovered actually in Africa associated with cancer, which is one of the things that they're now finding that Epstein-Barr virus can cause later in life. But what they find is that Normally, Epstein-Barr virus is in your cells at a very low load. In a recent review article on Epstein-Barr virus by Paul J. Farrell, he states that about 0.01% of B lymphocytes, which are the immune cells that Epstein-Barr virus infects, are in normal carriers, neuronal cells. But in cancer associated with Epstein-Barr virus, all the malignant cells are infected with the virus. So there's a much heightened level of Epstein-Barr virus in some cancers.
1: It's really interesting. So are they saying that the Epstein-Barr causes cancer or is it just the cancer cells are easier to house the Epstein-Barr virus?
0: I think at this point they're saying that there is a strong correlation, a strong association with Epstein-Barr virus and cancer. However, there's obviously a lot more research to do there because 90% of adults are carrying Epstein-Barr virus, but we're not all going to get cancer associated with Epstein-Barr virus in our future. Right. So, yeah, I mean, cancers are obviously extremely complicated systems and terribly challenging to to sort of understand what is the root cause Um, because they happen later in life with everything else that happens to you. They're often attributed to things that might have happened 20 years ago that just kind of like... Slowly manifested over time. So, yeah, I think right now they're they're just starting to sort of see that there's an association, but they're not saying Epstein. If you have Epstein Barr virus, you're going to get cancer.
1: Right. It's really hard to nail down that causation.
0: Yes. As for Mona, going back to Mono and Tina, and having the Epstein Barr virus. So in a Franz play, Mona ultimately dies, but this is very unlikely. Death occurs in less than 1% of people who contract mononucleosis. And it's usually from another complication like uh, your spleen rupturing. But mono is not the only thing Epstein Barr virus can manifest in. As we've mentioned, mono can, or Epstein Barr virus can also be associated with cancers and sclerosis.
2: And and sclerosis is when uh, you have. Hardening and inflammation of of body parts, so they don't work very well anymore. Mm, and that is no good.
0: And then my final f- not so fun fact about mono. Well, actually, this one is sort of a good fun fact. This one's kind of fun because of this, because it's not just a disease of teenagers that is, not serious. It's only serious in 1% of cases. Scientists are getting close to developing a nanoparticle vaccine against this virus. So far, they've seen positive results in mice, ferrets, and non-human primates, but they haven't quite moved into human testing. So I think that is hopeful for the future in whether or not we can have a vaccine against this virus. Whether or not people take it... mm -hmm
1: questionable
0: well we're learning these things every day but the science is coming and so that is tina belcher's microbe moment of mononucleosis yeah i mean tina also gets like other micro tina also has a couple other micro moments where she gets diarrhea and which is the episode we just recently watched
1: to be fair that's every one of the belchers i think except louise has had a bout of that
0: well Louise had her, uh, her poop problems too when she went to the aquarium.
1: But that was constipation. That was
0: constipation.
2: True. But both have to do with microbes.
1: Yeah. And Bob
2: had his fun diarrhea episode when they went camping. Mm hmm. Mm hmm.
1: Which is why you should always cook your fish thoroughly. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that is
0: a public safety announcement brought to you by Jonathan Mitchell. Let's move on to the middlest of children, Gene Belcher. What is his micro-moment, John?
1: This week's episode of the Micro-Moment is brought to you by Zymo Research.
0: Accurate and reproducible microbiome analysis relies on well-defined mock community standards as well as optimized methods for sample collection, nucleic acid extraction, library prep, and bioinformatics. Check out Zymo's complete microbiome workflow at zymoresearch.com. That's Z-Y-M-O-R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H dot com.
1: Well, what can we say about Gene? He's a lyrical genius. Mm-hmm. He's very random. Yeah, and when he gets invested into something, it's he goes all in. And so this micro moment would be algae. Mm-hmm. Now this was season nine, episode seventeen, and it starts out with Gene coming back from detention because he's playing annoying music, and then he wants to cool off, so he goes to an oyster bar with Tina and Louise
0: which like what nine-year-old likes oysters none or is he 11 he's 11 what 11 year old likes oysters
1: again none
2: well he does like boogers so some people say that oysters
0: are like every 11 year old likes boogers
1: yeah and tina's gagging the entire time
0: Mm, i would be too
1: so the the man working in the shack charles you know what lives in oysters vibrio cholera
0: vibrio cholera there (laughs) it is
1: and Vibrio volinicus, Vibrio parahemolyticus.
0: Hemolyticus. Yeah, buddy. Okay. All the Vibrios. I got our Vibrio call out for the episode. We can move on now.
1: All right. So, the man working behind the shack, Charles, tells the kids about plankton after they see a green blob in the ocean. And that night, Gene goes to the beach because he's angry that none of his family members like his music. And in a fit of rage, he tosses uh, a rock into the ocean, and the water emits a blue light. And Gene is enthralled with it. He even says, I think I love you.
0: Gene's <laughs> got a weird relationship with love.
1: And then they go back to the ocean the next day, and Charles tells them that Gene's a uh, bioluminescence. But the kids find out that the Glenfest Yacht Club is going to bleach the algae. No! Uh, because they're having a regatta. And a stupid throwaway joke is the workers say, We got a regatta. We got a regatta. And so this pretty much uh, goes into them going to the Yacht Club, trying to stop them. The Yacht Club lies to them, saying it's toxic allergy, and then they want to get back at the Yacht Club once they find out it's a ruse. So what do they do? They go see Sasha and Duncan at the Cleanshead Yacht Club. Now, if those that like to watch Bob's Burgers, Sasha is the rich, preppy yacht kid who talks in a very annoying tone, and Duncan is the Australian kid.
0: He's like an exchange student or something. Yeah.
1: So they come up with a plan where they're going to switch the bleach with pinko breadcrumbs. And also, Tina gets too interested in Duncan's leg knobs. Mm,
0: Not his butt once, for once. Yeah. But his leg knobs. His leg knobbies.
1: Leg knobbies. Yeah. So... Their plan is foiled, they do replace it, but then Seagull's starting the panko, and they don't know what to do, so they rent kayaks, and they kayak in disguise to the yacht club protest, but they find out that Gene's annoying music, which is him pounding, causes the algae to move. And so they all start pounding their kayaks, and they save the algae from the yacht club. Mm-hmm. only to be eaten by fish. They're, they're completely devoured at the end.
0: As tends to happen. Yeah. So moral of the story, your annoying habit might save something only to inevitably be eaten by something else.
1: Yeah. I mean, seriously, they just ended at being eaten at the fish.
0: I mean, I don't think the Belcher kids were too broken up about it. No. No. Gene went to go find something else.
1: Yeah, he just went to go eat more oysters probably.
0: But after you're done like looking up aspergillus as we told you to go do, go look at some dinoflagellates because those guys are super cute too. It's a kind of plankton.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what is bioluminescence? Do tell me. It's light that's made by living organisms by way of biochemical reactions. Uh, Many organisms are actually able to do this with the chemical uh, luciferin, which reacts with oxygen. And some even contain an enzyme called luciferase, And what that really does is it speeds up the reaction between the two molecules to allow it to happen. Some organisms can't glow. A good example is uh, squid.
0: Bobtail squid.
1: Yes, the bobtail squid. It can cannot... Also
0: adorable.
1: Yes. You, <laughs> you, you can see it glowing at night. However, that is not the squid doing it. It is the microbes that live inside the squid.
0: Heck yes, they are.
1: And how do they do that? It's kind of interesting. There's this mechanism called quorum sensing, where microbes will emit a chemical that the others can pick up. But as they grow more and more dense, if there's more microbes, there's more of that chemical. And it reaches a threshold where there's enough of that chemical that causes the reaction to occur. So it's kind of like a density-dependent type occurrence
0: yeah it's a form of microbial communication for collaboration and we have a blog on it called vibrio fisheri the lightsabers of the ocean
1: and it's a squid holding two lightsabers
0: it's so
2: cute (laughs) one of my faves
1: so as you said glowing algae are dinoflagellates and those are protozoa that produce light when disturbed by motion which i didn't know like i was trying to figure out why do they glow it's kind of like a two-pronged thing they have to be dense enough and it's motion that causes this to occur and it's only a fraction of a second and why do they cause a flashlight they believe it's a defense mechanism that the sunlight will startle fish that are trying to eat it and in addition it may even attract larger fish to the area that would eat the, the predator of the algae
0: yeah buddy small things doing big stuff
1: And so this brings us to how do they regulate their bioluminescence? Well, there's many ways, and some they don't really know why or how it exactly happens. So a lot of them have diurnal pattern, which is like day and night pattern, uh, where the plankton will degrade the proteins and the enzymes responsible for bioluminescence. And they also degrade this thing called syncytis. Tillins, which are structures that the chemicals will react on causing the bioluminescence. This happens when daylight comes. Now, once they sense the light, they start breaking it down. Uh, however, others, when they sense the light coming, those tillins will move to the center of the cell so the light can't reach it, so it can't bioluminate. Hmm. And then there's another way that it's regulated by photoinhibition where exposure to light stops or prevents the reaction. Now, I try to go into further, but it kind of sounds like they don't really know how that occurs. It just occurs, and they called it that.
0: Hmm. Okay.
1: So I thought that was pretty cool, and that's that's what I got in algae. Oh, and you can see these all over the world. Uh, I think the most famous places are probably the, the shorelines of Australia. You'll see a lot of pictures of those. If you're on the West Coast, certain times of the year, you'll see it in San Diego.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: and it's pretty ubiquitous around the world so if you're lucky enough to f- see it I'm envious of you
0: mm, although I don't think it occurs very often in the northeast mm, which is not. definitely where the Belchers live
1: yeah they were just having a hot summer probably mm,
0: wicked hot alright shall we move to the tiniest of the Belchers
1: and my favorite character uh, Louise
0: little miss Louise okay so here we go with Louise's micro moment she actually has two micro moments within season two episode three entitled synchronized swimming allow me to refresh your memory on this episode or some background if you've never seen it because it's an oldie but it's a goodie the episode opens up with linda squatting into crowning otter to keep her pelvic floor perky Then it is shown that Linda might be coddling her kids a little too much to the point where Linda is dreaming for her eldest daughter, Tina, writing in Tina's dream journal that she had a dream about breastfeeding her middle child, who is wearing a Santa beard, which we're not going to get into that anymore. We'll move on from that. While well, this opening would certainly go in any direction, it takes an unlikely turn to the kids being P.O.ed about P.E. And this is our first micro-moment for Louise, where she refuses to take off her bunny ears, claiming she has a raging staph infection under her bunny ears, and she will not take off her hat under any circumstances, especially not for gym class. But it's the second micro-moment we'll discuss in more details here tonight. So the kids convince Mr. Frond, their guidance counselor, that they should do an independent study in synchronized swimming, and Linda can be their coach. The kids forge Linda's signature, which, I mean, who hasn't done that? And whop, bam, boom, they don't have to go to PA class anymore. They're an independent study doing whatever they want for the period of gym class. But Linda soon finds out and is determined to teach them a lesson about taking advantage of her. So. She becomes their synchronized swimming coach. One thing leads to another, and Mr. Fraun is asking for a graded performance in front of the board of the school. And now the kids are in trouble because Linda quit, determined to let her bratty little babies fly with their crappy little wings. And Bob is in trouble when he finds out the kids, if they don't have a coach and they don't pass this graded performance, they're going to go to summer school. And then he doesn't have his child labor for the whole summer at the restaurant. Swirl it. Swirl it. (laughs) So Bob joins as coach, but Bob is not very good at synchronized swimming or coaching. And then here is when we get to the micro moment number two for Louise Belcher, which does include a number two. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Louise tries to cancel the graded performance by first grabbing some baby powder and squirting it in Jean's face yelling anthrax run for your lives and that's my friends is where we began the microbe portion of today's programming on Louise's microbe moment let's talk a little bit about anthrax and while I point of ridiculous humor in the show anthrax is really a thing to joke about in the real world It's kind of a big deal.
1: Very, very deadly.
0: Yeah. So let's get into it. Anthrax is caused by the gram-positive rod-shaped bacteria known as Bacillus anthracis. It has a special ability of creating spores of a protective shield that it can hide in for years if it wants to. And And it may not be as rare as you think, although we don't hear about it a lot in our developed Western countries. It is often found in soils and animals. In the US and other developing countries, it's pretty rare, but outbreaks have been seen. But if you do contract anthrax and bacillus or come in contact with thraceous bacillus, it can be very serious. People generally contract this disease if they come in contact with bacillus spores from an infected animal or even contaminated animal products. I think at one point I even read that you could get it if you're touching leather or wearing clothes that might be from a contaminated cow as well.
1: That's true. Where we got our bachelors, there's a kid that got a... Um sheepskin from overseas for the drum and they contracted anthrax oh
0: yeah i remember that yeah crazy so there are actually four different kinds of anthrax that you can contract the first would be cutaneous which is when spores come in contact with A cut on your skin. This is probably the most common, but often is the least dangerous. You'll develop itchy bumps and blisters, swelling, ulcers, but generally you'll be okay. The second form is the most deadly form, and this is inhalation. This is the kind we often think about and what Louise was going for when she attempted to give her brother anthrax through baby powder. This is where you can get fevered, Fever, chills, chest pain, shortness of breath, dizziness, cough, nausea, headaches, sweats, tiredness, and overall body aches. This one often leads to death. The third type is gastrointestinal. So this is when you eat raw or undercooked meat from an infected animal. Without treatment, it can be pretty fatal, but with treatment, about 60% of people will survive, which is not really great.
1: No, not at all.
0: No, it's just best not to eat undercooked meat. As far as symptoms go, you will contract a lot of what we've already said about fever, sweat, headache, nausea, Uh, but you also have painful swelling of the abdomen, your neck, glands, you could have a sore throat and a red face and eyes. And then the fourth kind is the rarest of all kinds of anthrax. And this is injection. And this one I didn't know about. This has never been seen in the U.S., um, but it's when you can get anthrax through heroin injections or from sharing needles.
1: That's different.
0: Yeah. I've never heard that one before, but I guess that's the thing. Don't do heroin. You'll lower your risks of contracting anthrax. That's a win-win. So we've talked about the discovery of anthrax a couple times in a couple different places on our blog and in our podcast. But for those of you who don't know, Bacillus anthracis was a huge reason why Robert Koch is a name that we still know and talk about in Microbiology 101. And it was probably another ginormous reason why we call him the father of microbiology. We won't get into too much about Koch and his journey with bacillus anthracis because we have it elsewhere. So if you're interested, check out our podcast on Robert Koch.
1: The only thing I'll say about that that's what gave him notoriety.
0: It was. But bacillus anthracis also gives us another lovely little gift that everyone probably should appreciate to some extent because we use the word all the time. The great Louis Pasteur also has some micro moments with bacillus anthracis. He was also a contemporary of Coke, and we also have a whole podcast and two full blog posts about this man who is often known as one of the greatest scientists of all time. But while he was researching bacillus anthracis, he started to use the word microbe. And now we have the word microbe. Hmm. I love that word. Yeah, it's Fantastic. Finally, let's talk about Bacillus anthracis' role in our vaccine history, which actually is timely because on May 5th in 1881, Louis Pasteur gathered up 60 sheep 25 of which he received a dose of his Bacillus anthracis vaccine. 25 of which received no vaccine, but a lethal dose of anthracis Bacillus. And 10 kept as a control. sets so that's our 60 sheep. Eventually, I think a goat and cow also joined this herd. They put it on public display and everyone watched as the sheeps with the vaccine lived and the sheep without the vaccine all died.
1: Not my kind of entertainment.
0: No. But it was a huge moment in vaccine history. And that happened May 5th, 1881. So pretty close to when we're recording this podcast. I guess it'll be a little bit later when you hear this. So bacillus anthracis was a much bigger deal during Louis Pasteur's time and Robert Koch's time. As 10 to 50% of livestock could be infected with the disease and end up dead. So this was a huge thing for farms and agriculture during the 19th century. Although it's not that big of a deal today, uh, there is a pretty big micro moment involving anthrax in our modern history. Does anyone know what it is?
1: It was that a scare where someone was mailing anthrax spores to uh, government officials, I think.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, I remember hearing about it, and it was quite scary because you know they were putting it in an envelope, and so you would open the envelope, and the and the powder would, you know, that so people were very afraid, you know, and it was just something we had never thought of before that that would be a delivery system through the mail. So it was, it was a scary time when that happened, you know, and the, and then there were copycats and people putting laundry detergent and stuff, and you know, you just. It's a, something you you picture yourself opening an envelope, and you know there was nothing you could do about it. That, you know it could be a letter, it could be a thing full of poisonous powder that uh, you're not going to recover from. So, I do remember that it was quite scary for for a lot of people because we'd never thought that that was a way you could deliver, and so it worked as a as a terrorist attack for sure because uh, people were very afraid.
0: Certainly, yeah. And this anthrax scare was heightened, of course, because of its proximity to the 2001 terrorist attack on American soil. But in the anthrax scare, it was not related at all to the terrorist attack that happened in New York. Um, It was totally separate from that. But it was a very serious attack where five Americans were eventually killed and 17 others were sickened due to the letters laced with anthrax. Now, I was reading a lot of various news articles that came out from this time or maybe from a couple of years ago, and there was quite a few that claimed this was the worst biological attack in U.S. history, uh, which I have a huge problem with because if you think that is true then you have no clue about american history and how we came to be to this country but leaving that aside it was certainly a terrifying and horrific event in recent us history
2: you know i recently completed an EMT class and it is a big part of that class that type of agent and how like EMS responders would need to you know basically protect themselves from that type of uh, attack. And it was, you know, you don't think of it daily, but it it was a very important part of the EMT class was learning about that. They stressed it very highly. Mm -hmm.
1: I remember watching um, a news report where they were talking to a microbiology specialist on anthrax, and he was holding a vial of the anthrax during the scare. And what's particularly scary about the strain that was used is it is attracted to static electricity. So like you open that, if you've been like walking on a carpet, that thing just clings to you. There's it's not coming off. So that that adds a whole nother layer of terroristic or biological warfare type
0: mechanism. Yeah. Wow, that's it. yeah, I didn't know that. And yeah, um, opening mail on carpets is a very real thing that people do. Yeah. So the FBI coined this investigation as a uh, we would probably do a full episode of this at some point in the future because I think it has a lot of interesting things to do, both as a history piece, as a microbiology piece, as a bioterrorist piece, as a microbial education piece. I think there's a lot of really interesting facets within here. So the investigation went on for eight years before it finally closed in February 2010. But who was the bioterrorist?
1: I don't know who. I remember vague details. There's a suspect, but they committed suicide, so they're never able to prove exactly they were the culprit.
0: Exactly right. No one can really know for sure. In the beginning, because of the proximity to 9-11, everyone first blamed or coupled them together uh, and thought the same people were responsible. As time went on, the FBI said, no, we don't think this is linked to that terrorist attack, but we think it's Dr. Stephen Hatfill, who was a scientist at the US Army's Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases. Uh, he was in the same spaces where anthrax was housed. but it wasn't him. He was eventually cleared and he ended up suing the US Justice Department and won5.8 million dollars in 2008. And so the next person that FBI zeroed in on was Dr. Bruce E. Evans who worked at the same location as Dr. Stephen Hatfield at the the U.S. Army's Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases. But they could never quite pin it on Dr. Bruce E. Evans because, as John said, he committed suicide in July 2008 via a lethal dose of Tylenol. Anywho, do remember (laughs) when we were talking about Louise Belcher? (laughs) That's where this whole dark tunnel came down.
1: Wow, yeah. That episode.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you know, Louise is a dark character, and so we had to go down a dark rabbit hole to show you her micro-moment. Well, my micro-friends, that's it for the micro-moment of the Belchers. Next week, we'll come to you with a totally different podcast of an interview of someone who's gonna be wicked interesting
1: tune in to find out everyone
0: exactly yeah so if you were not a fan of this episode you weren't a fan of last week's episode star wars not to fret because the next 10 episodes coming at you will not be related to media i know i have a lot of fun with this stuff but not everyone does next time we're coming at you with some hard science facts and interviews and we'll do it to bomb pretty soon as well
1: it's about that time
0: oh also, if you did enjoy this episode, here is my challenge to you. If you are a Bob's Burgers fan, then you know at and the title screen, they have the shop next to Bob's Burgers always has a different name. And it's kind of a pun or a play on words. So my challenge to you is if the micro moment had our recording studio next to Bob's Burgers, what would be the name on the building? You can let us know what you think it should be at Microbigales on Twitter and Instagram, or go ahead and send us a Gmail at Microbigales at gmail.com.
1: And as we've said earlier, a lot of these topics we have talked about before, we've talked about anthrax, we talked about Robert Koch, we talked about Louis Pasteur, we even talked about wine, and you can find that on our website, Microbigales.com. I highly suggest you check it out. Oh. And the Jedi squid. If you're going to go there, go find the Jedi squid. It's worth it.
2: Vibrio fish ride, the lightsabers of the ocean. Yeah. And hey, if you've seen some microbe moments in some other shows, we'd love to hear about it. So uh, let us know if you've seen something on any of your favorite movies or shows uh, that you think are microbial related.
0: Yeah, because like, honestly, this is what I love to do. And so if you guys love it, too, I'd love to know. And then we will just do this. I'm 100% okay with it.
1: <laughs> Who knows? Maybe we'll even like review a movie or a show and see how like accurate it is.
0: The micro moment exists everywhere. Everything has a micro moment. Always, all the time, everywhere. We gotta watch that movie and figure out if there's a micro moment there too. Mm. Until next time, feed your minds, feed your guts, make your microbes love you lots.
1: Bye. Bye. Bye.